1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at
2: CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Wall Street waking up with a black eye after yesterday's broad based sell off that saw the Dow swing more than 1,000 points before ending the day sharply lower. And this is all after Fed Chair Jay Powell delivered the central bank's fourth straight 75 basis point rate hike in a row and admitted rates will likely top out higher than expected. It's not just the Fed, though. Investors are bracing for a one-two punch from the Bank of England, likely to signal a similar hawkish tone later on this morning. Plus, Elon Musk gets set to pull the trigger on a massive cost-cutting measure that could cost more than 3,000 Twitter staffers their jobs. And then later on, the China stock market rebound ends as Beijing reiterates its support of the controversial zero-COVID policy. We've got reaction ahead. It is Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chu, in for Brian Sullivan, let's kick off this Thursday morning with a check on U.S. stock futures. We're going to call them stable. Again, the Dow's implied lower by just 16 points. The S&P down by five and the Nasdaq down by 25. Not bad. It's not great. But this is all after wild swings yesterday for stocks that saw the Dow move nearly 1000 points from the high point to the low point only to end the day sharply down lower, as you can see with this time lapse. We got kind of a nice move higher right after the Fed rate announcement, and then, of course, moved towards the lows of the session, down 506 points by the time things were said and done. It was worse for the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, by the way, ending yesterday down 25 and 3% respectively. As you can see there, Fed rate hike's a big part of the story. Fed chair Jay Powell delivered the central bank's fourth straight 75 basis point rate hike, Three quarters of 1%, and warned that while the pace of hikes may slow down, the central bank's terminal rate may top out at a higher level than first thought. That's where they're going to end this rate hiking campaign. Now, in the wake of that sentiment and that statement, yields right now are moving higher. The 10 year benchmark U.S. Treasury note yield, 4.15%, the two year note yield, just a hair below 4.69% as well. In energy prices, we're seeing a drop off there. Demand is a concern. Economic slowdowns a concern u s benchmark west texas intermediate eighty eight dollars and seventy cents down a buck thirty or one and a half percent ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge down a dollar ten to ninety five dollars and six cents that's off about one and a quarter percent and natural gas prices are down three and a half percent as well in cryptocurrencies. They're stable compared to other parts of the market right now. We are still watching that 20,000 level for Bitcoin. We're marginally higher today. Bitcoin prices 20,307, up about one-tenth of one percent. A third percent gains for Ethereum, $1,547.88. Now, post-Fed reaction around around the world is fairly maybe obvious at this point. We're seeing red. More so in China. We've got the Hang Seng in Hong Kong down about three percent. Just about two tenths of one percent declines for the Shanghai Composite and the Nikkei in Japan is just about flat on the session. Let's spin that globe over to what's happening with the early action in Europe right now. We are off the session lows, but we are still down fractionally. The German DAX off about one half of one percent similar percentage declines for the CAC in France. And the FTSE 100 in the U.K. down about one quarter of one percent. Nonetheless, it's pretty much red right across the board with that European trade. We'll stick with that European continent. It's not just hawkish tones here from the Fed taking center stage this morning. The Bank of England's latest policy decision is also on deck. Now, the BOE is expected to announce its biggest interest rate hike in more than three decades amid recent market turmoil and, of course, surging inflation. Our own Jumana Bersecci is outside the BOE and joins us now. Jumana, good morning. What can you tell us about what the expectations are? It's pretty much baked in. But what do you think the markets are going to do in the wake of that big rate hike coming up?
3: That is the big question. A 75 basis point hike is pretty much priced in at this point, 90 percent priced in. If there is a surprise, it might be a dovish surprise. And we get a 50 basis point hike. But still, 75 basis point will be the highest interest rate hike the Bank of England deliver. Since 1989, quite significant. And of course, all of this is because inflationary pressures are building up in the economy. You've got headline inflation running at 10.1 percentage point, core inflation at 6.5, wage pressures at 6 percentage point. This is a bank that has its price stability mandate to set inflation at 2 percentage points. So definitely these numbers are making them feel uncomfortable. In addition to all of the market turmoil that we've had over the last couple of months or so namely after that mini budget we saw a massive spike in yields we had the bank of england come in to temporarily intervene and restore some liquidity back to the bond market but i would say dom one of the bigger issues here is also the bank of england's attempt to restore credibility in themselves as an institution because the whole country has been going under this credibility crisis not just because of the fiscal outlook but also because of concerns about the Bank of England's handle on inflation given how high inflation levels are running in this economy. So yes, we will get an interest rate hike today but similar to the Fed yesterday investors want to hear about what their path is for interest rates going forward and how willing they are to take how high they are willing to take interest rates in environments where we're beginning to see some signs of a growth dropping off as well.
2: Jumana, I wonder, uh, we've been reporting on this idea that we've now seen in the U.S. Four straight 75 basis point rate hikes, three quarters of 1% each time for four straight times. For the Bank of England, why did they take so long to hike by 75 basis points on their own, given that their inflation picture is in some ways worse than ours here in America?
3: very valid question and a question that the governor himself has uh, had to respond to i also pose the same question to him he says you know if we could do things retroactively if we had all the information perhaps he might have acted differently the thing about the bank of england is they actually actually started their hiking cycle sooner than any of the other major uh, developed uh, central banks so they started started back in december but it took them a while to start coming out with these jumbo hikes as you mentioned 75 basis points would be the first time they do this since 1989 but they've also got one eye on the growth outlook dom and this is the issue because they're already forecasting a recession of minus 1.3 percentage points for 2023 they're likely going to have to downgrade that even further come today and so they're in a very tricky situation where inflation is sky high double digits but then also the growth outlook seems to be getting worse and worse as the market accounts for a higher terminal rate just one thing i'll leave you with at the end is going into the last meeting back in August, the uh, NPR report, the market was pricing a terminal rate at three percentage points. We're now pricing a terminal rate of 4.75. So the market is saying they've still got some way to go as well, similar to the Fed, in order to get those inflation levels under check.
2: All right, Giovanna Bersethi, live in London, outside the Bank of England. Thank you very much. Let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Sylvana, good morning.
4: Dom, good morning to you. Elon Musk is finalizing plans to fire as much as half of Twitter's 7,500-person workforce and could put it into effect as soon as tomorrow, according to multiple reports. Musk also aims to mandate in-office work starting Monday. That's reversing Twitter's current work-from-anywhere policy. The massive cost-cutting measure comes as Musk struggles to keep advertisers on board during his leadership transition and plans to roll out a premium $8 per month subscription service. EV maker Fisker confirming to CNBC it is on track to begin production of its first SUV dubbed Ocean later this month and now has more than 62,000 reservations for the vehicle. That's up from more than 56,000 back in August. Company CEO Henrik Fisker says his company will be able to produce just over 42,000 Ocean SUVs by the end of next year. Executives at Trump Media and Technology Group, parent of right-wing Twitter clone Truth Social, are naming Parler and Rumble as possible acquisition targets. That's according to documents provided by Trump Media co-founder turned whistleblower William Wilkerson's legal team. Among Wilkerson's documents is a photo depicting a flow chart describing what it calls, quote, Trump's new media empire, which, along with parlor and Rumble, could also include One America News, Newsmask and Discord, Dom.
2: All right, Silvana, here now with the latest corporate headlines. Thank you very much. Back to this yeah. morning's top story and investors still digesting the Fed's fourth straight supersized rate hike and chairman Jay Powell's promise to keep his foot on the accelerator.
5: It
6: is very premature to be thinking about pausing. So people, when they hear lags, they think about about a pause. It's very premature, in my view, to, to, to think about or be talking about pausing our rate hike.
2: All right. Joining me now is Federated Investors Vice President Linda Bakshin. Uh, Linda, you heard the comments. We saw the knee jerk reactions in the markets. That's not uncommon for a big catalyst of this nature. But why the disconnect? What was so, I I guess, confusing about the statement? And then the clarification need from Jay Powell during the press conference to say that, no, 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 don't don't tilt this as dovish. We're actually pretty hawkish about this.
7: Well, I think essentially Powell really needed to thread the needle here. So if he even gave the notion that he was easing up on rate increases, then the markets would have had, you know, a crazy, you know, uh, amazing day, uh, you know, moving higher and creating more of an inflation issue for him. So he essentially opened the door for the possibility of a lower rate increases in the future, maybe 50, 25s in the next couple of months, but also acknowledge that financial conditions are somewhat tighter. And while also raising the notion that higher rates are going to stay higher for longer. And absolutely, as the clip mentioned, no pause whatsoever um, for the markets to kind of even misinterpret what he's going to do. But I think once the Dust actually settles. I think Powell will look. I think acknowledging that the pace and the level of Fed increases that has been done so far this year, and hopefully that they are not on autopilot, essentially driving the economy, you know, off a cliff by stating that there's considerable, they're going to consider the considerable developments, um, that actually should be positive longer term for the markets. And that will actually mean that, you know, potentially they're going from being data dependent to being maybe potentially forecast dependent. Um, so that that I think once the dust settles could actually be positive for the markets.
2: Linda, at the end of the day, I mean, you mentioned the idea that this could be the right course of action Is it enough? And when would we be likely to see some of the real inflationary pressures start to ease off in the U.S. economy? Uh, Is it going to be the middle to end of next year? Is it going to be in 2024 and beyond? There is a policy lag. So how long will it take?
7: So the first set of the rate increases went into effect second quarter of this year. So given that, you know, there's almost a six month lag between the first rate hike, and once you actually see it in the economy, you're going to start feeling the effects of the third quarter and the current rate increases sometime in the first half of next year. So with energy prices essentially hopefully coming down and moderating and anniversarying tougher numbers into March, April of next year, plus the fact that wage growth um, is starting to moderate. And you are starting to see companies, um, you know, essentially freeze or, as you know mentioned earlier in your newscast around Twitter, firing people. I think that in itself together, you are going to start seeing inflation march downwards. But again, going to 2 percent could be a little bit longer, maybe towards the end of next year. But certainly you're going to see the pace of that inflation start to fall and numbers start to moderate from here.
2: All right. Uh, Perhaps a positive outlook there for the inflation picture. Linda Bakshin at Federated, thank you very much. We appreciate it. When we come back on the show, China doubles down on its zero COVID policy, taking the wind out of the sails of stocks in that region. Perhaps not shocking. Plus, Carl Icahn has a new target in mind as he takes on Big Beverage. And then later on, taking stock with investors as Netflix launches its highly anticipated ad-supported subscription tier. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break.
4: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com/slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery. Packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
2: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. China's health authority reiterating its support for its country's zero COVID policy. Crushing rumors, Beijing is creating a committee to consider an exit from that controversial strategy. Markets in Asia reacting in kind after a brief two-day rally on those possible hypothetical COVID-0 reversal rumors. But major attention this morning remains on the area around iPhone City, where a nine-day lockdown gets set to close out its second day. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now from Beijing with the latest on this zero-COVID policy. Eunice.
8: Thanks, Dom. Well, local authorities have told reporters there that they will completely disinfect, they say, Foxconn's Zhengzhou plant in the next three days. Uh, They also said that anyone who is quarantined is going to have to take a test, a a COVID test every single day for the next seven days before they be allowed to go home. Now, this all comes as uh, China continues to uh, vow to stick to its zero COVID policy. Uh, The national Uh, Health Commission, of course, the top authority, said that they would adhere unwaveringly to zero COVID and that citizens need to stay, quote, as alert as in the early days of COVID. Now, meanwhile, the costs of that uh, COVID policy um, have been mounting from the economy. Not only uh, is the latest October data showing that uh, the services activity have fallen off, but also local authorities Across the country, have started to announce that they're going to pass the cost of the COVID test, which currently is free everywhere, onto the Chinese public. So this is covering the manufacturing area of Guangdong, all the way to a certain poorer parts of the country, such as Guizhou. Now Shanghai had uh, set t- had been set to charge uh, for the for these tests after November 30th. Uh, the fee range is. Is still relatively cheap, but there's already been grumbling about the added cost and financial pressure for the people. Now, we have some good news uh, despite all of this. Uh, NEO, the EV maker, said that it's resuming production at its two Hefei plants. This is after yesterday saying that it had to suspend its production. And uh, Dom Macau's MGM Kotai casino has reopened after testing everybody there Uh, resulted in an all clear. For them to reopen.
2: So, so Eunice, we, we have a, an interesting story up on CNBC.com right now talking about the business environment in China and the Economist Intelligence Unit basically reporting and saying that what we are hearing from companies, this is their words, is that they are moving ahead with their supply chain diversification plans because this start stop economy is here to stay in China. Is business sentiment going to be affected given that we are seeing real world examples? of businesses being forced to shut down and restart, shut down and restart because of the zero COVID policies that they have. And by the way, this could be the policy for any kind of issue going forward with regard to public health.
8: Absolutely. I mean, we've already been seeing it um, on a large scale, such as at Foxconn, and then also on a smaller scale, such as like a, a small business that's uh, maybe selling laundry or, or selling clothes or, or whatnot. I mean, it's just, it's very difficult to plan. A lot of businesses, um, you know, you might think that you're going to open up one day and then suddenly uh, you're caught and you're told that uh, there was a close contact that somebody was detecting. You haven't actually, you don't actually know anybody who's gotten sick, but then suddenly you're locked in your home or worse in an isolation facility for the next seven days, or it could be 10 days. You have no idea because there isn't a whole lot of consistency in the way these regulations are carried out. So because of that, um, people here and business people are having to plan uh, for a lot of this uncertainty, and it's just very, very difficult to do, which is why so many are starting to look at other ways to keep the business going, which might not mean staying, uh, having as much investment here in China.
2: Eunice Yoon, live from Beijing with the latest on zero COVID. Thank you very much over there. Still on deck for the show. Your big money movers and yet another tech stock getting hit hard by the global advertising slowdown. We are back on Worldwide Exchange after this.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, package-less and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
2: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers. Let's start out with Etsy. The online marketplace reporting a third-quarter loss due to a charge for the write-down of the value of some acquisitions, including Depop. Without that, earnings did beat forecasts. Revenue rose even as sales kind of declined overall in certain aspects of the business following an increase in transaction fees from sellers on the platform. But Etsy shares are up about 9.5% in the pre-market trade. Up next, you've got Roku, the maker of streaming devices, posting a smaller-than-expected third-quarter loss as revenues grew 12%. But shares right now are tumbling as the company warns sales from its two main businesses, advertising and streaming hardware, will fall in the fourth quarter. CEO Anthony Wood says advertisers, including toy companies, are reducing spending because of economic uncertainty. So Roku shares down nearly 19 percent pre-market. And then finally, it's Qualcomm. Fourth quarter profits topping estimates, but revenues did miss forecasts. The chipmaker is slashing its forecast for smartphone shipments again and is giving gloomy sales guidance for its fiscal first quarter. Qualcomm has implemented a hiring freeze and says it could make further spending cuts if necessary. Qualcomm CEO, by the way, will be on Mad Money with Jim Cramer later on tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. So you had AMD and Lisa Su yesterday. You had Cristiano Amon at Qualcomm today. A lot of chips covered on Mad Money. Uh, remember, a lot of traders look into him as a leading indicator for the overall tech sector and maybe even the markets. Now, as we head to break, history is in the majors during last night's World Series Game 4 as right-hander Christian Javier and three Houston Astros relievers combine to throw just the second no-hitter in World Series history 66 years after Don Larson's perfect game for the New York Yankees back in 1956. This series now, by the way, the fall classic now tied two games apiece with the Phillies hosting game five tonight. What a pitching display by the Astros. Good job. We'll be back after this break. No pivot, no pause. That's the message from Fed Chairman Jay Powell.
6: It is very premature to be thinking about pausing. So people, when they hear lags, they think about about a pause. It's very premature, in my view, to, to, to think about or be talking about pausing our rate hike.
9: They sort of contradict themselves. kind of put the kibosh on the idea of, of anything resembling a pivot.
2: Investors seeking safety with stocks coming off a sharply lower session yesterday. The futures right now are mixed this morning. And Netflix rolling out its long-anticipated ad-supported tier today. But is it too little too late for a stock that's already down more than 50% this year? It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off this half hour with a look at U.S. equity futures, which are stable compared to yesterday. Right now, the Dow's implied lower by just eight points, the SP lower by about three to four points, and the NASDAQ down by roughly 18 to 19 after a big sell off. Now, in the bond market, yields are on the rise. The benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield is drifting higher to just a little below 4.18%. The benchmark two-year note yield, 4.697%. So again, the entire yield curve, all maturities tending to move higher in terms of rates. That means bond prices are falling. All of this after the Fed delivered its fourth straight 75 basis point rate hike in a row and downplayed any speculation of a pivot in the months ahead.
6: It is very premature to be thinking about pausing. So people, when they hear lags, they think about, about a pause. It's very premature, in my view, to, to, to think about or be talking about pausing our rate hike. We, we, have, we have a ways to go. Our policy, we need ongoing rate hikes to get to, um, to, to that level of, of sufficiently uh, restrictive. And we, we don't, of course, we don't really know exactly where that is. We have a sense.
2: And then there's Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock. Joining Closing Bell Overtime just yesterday, highlighting Powell's policy tightrope.
9: He sort of contradicted himself. You know, he sounded kind of dovish with sort of a, huh, you know, we've tightened a lot already. And then suddenly it's what we think rates are going to go higher than we thought before. And kind of put the kibosh on the idea of, of anything resembling a pivot, a, a, a plateau of quite some time. And, and I think that really uh, was intentional.
2: All right. It's a lot of commentary to digest. Joining me now to help decipher it is Josh Wine, Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Funds. Josh, you saw the same thing we all did yesterday. You saw the market reaction, very big to the upside, and then throughout the press conference, very much to the downside. We closed at session lows. Is now a time that you think that stocks will be revalued again based upon this new outlook from the Fed?
5: Good to be with you, Dominic.
2: Yeah, I think
5: I do think we're at the end of this cycle where investors think that we're going to pivot or pause or or they're going to moderate and and change their language dramatically. I mean the the Fed either a governor or or Chairman Powell comes out and 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 says no not so fast. But I think that you know I keep thinking about these five stages of grief and and I thought that we were in the acceptance stage and I think we're we're back in depression. Uh but I think that I think the Fed is just making it clear that you know we waited too long, and now that we're doing this, we're going to have to put the economy in a little bit of a Fed-induced coma. But I, I think the bull case is that we can see some light at the end of the tunnel. Where you know, bad news, maybe you know, unemployment rates or or GDP growth, you know, bad news will be good news. The Fed is going to have an ability to cut, it might not be in the next six months, but it could be in the next twelve months. So I, I think that you know, the Fed is is doing their best to look serious, but I think we all know that. Certainly the the days of 75 at a time could be over. And I think that's what they were trying to say. But, you know, 50, uh, you know, we're going to see some more 50s and and then maybe some 25s for a while. But I think the I think we're kind of coming to grips with that. I think I think we're near the end of this, this dramatic up and down uh, intraday like we saw yesterday.
2: Josh, you're a portfolio manager. You get paid to pick stocks and make investment decisions. Did anything that happened yesterday change how you're going to do your job today?
5: No, no. So, you know, we look out at, at, you know, at least a year, if not longer, if, if it was looking out a week or two, then I'm sure we would have to, you know, change our, our thoughts and, and positioning, but no, I mean, I think we're still looking at, you know, like in our Hennessy cornerstone mid cap 30 fund, we're looking at, you know, earnings growth and valuation and stock price momentum. and And we're still finding that there's still, you know, plenty of great ideas, things that fly under the radar. And uh, and no. So I think what that's the problem is it, notwithstanding the dramatic move yesterday, uh, I don't think a lot changes. What's on your shopping list, Josh? Sure. Yeah. So I think names, you know, again, that fly under the radar. We talk about the same names as a investment community a lot, but things like Sunoco products, which is packaging solutions for Consumer and industrial companies, you know, great cash flow generation, uh, less than ten times earnings, uh, you know, just very slow and steady wins the race, and and then super microcomputer. Uh, it's a kind of a funny name, but it is, you know, one of the tech companies out there that no one talks about. It's kind of the low margin equipment side of technology. Uh, again, less than ten times earnings. Uh, we're seeing, you know, revenue acceleration. Uh, they're expanding their capacity and they sell servers and storage products. And we saw just two days ago a, a great earnings report out of Supermicro. So I think some of these names you know, don't get a lot of attention, uh, nothing very sexy about them. But uh, I think this is a great environment to have a, have companies like that. I think there's a lot of visibility, a lot of stability in, in their business models.
2: Supermicro, a rare winner in a down market here. Josh Wine at Hennessy yeah. Funds, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Let's now get to the top corporate stories of the morning. Sylvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Sylvana.
4: Dom, good morning to you. Cosmetics maker uh, L'Oreal is denying reports it it has suspended advertising spending on Twitter. The company is one of the world's top 10 advertisers and spent more than 10 billion euros on promotions for its products last year alone. Now, despite L'Oreal's pushback, Musk on Twitter is, according to the Financial Times, Having difficulty keeping advertisers on board asking ad buyers to, quote, bear with us as we move through this leadership transition. Now, this comes as Musk is reportedly preparing to fire up to half of Twitter's 7,500 person workforce as soon as tomorrow and roll out an $8 a month subscription service soon after. Activist investor Carl Icahn has reportedly taken a sizable stake in beverage can maker Crown Holdings and is urging it to sell non-core units and buy back more stock. According to The Wall Street Journal, the billionaire investor now has a stake worth $700 million, making him the company's second largest shareholder. Crown has a market value of roughly $8 billion and shares have lost some 40 percent of their value this year. Reports this morning, the Justice Department is preparing to open an in-depth investigation into Adobe's $20 billion takeover of Figma. According to Politico, the DOJ has contacted customers and competitors of Adobe and Figma, as well as the startup's venture capital investors. If confirmed, the investigation would be the latest in a string of actions from regulators targeting the market power of the world's biggest tech companies, Dom.
2: All right, Sylvana Now, thank you very much for those headlines. BlackRock is responding to critics in the investment community who are pushing back on the firm's ESG initiatives. Our own Leslie Picker joins us now with the latest on that big story. Leslie.
10: Hey, Dom. Yeah, BlackRock is about one year into its voter choice program. This is something chairman and CEO Larry Fink says is part of a, quote, shareholder revolution in shareholder democracy. He's saying that description as well as a status update on the program in a new letter to clients and corporate CEOs. The goal of voting choice was to give BlackRock's institutional clients, the like pension funds and endowments, the option to vote on behalf of the stock they hold through passively through indexes. Historically, those voting decisions, including matters such as board composition, executive pay, and oh disclosures surrounding ESG issues, were outsourced to BlackRock's stewardship team. Fink says in the letter that to date, clients representing 25% of the $1.8 trillion in eligible assets are enrolled in voting choice. The number of BlackRock clients interested in signing up has doubled since May, he says. And of course, as you mentioned, the program is BlackRock's most visible response to criticisms that the world's largest asset manager has become too powerful and has an ESG-oriented agenda. Republican-controlled state treasurers have pulled more than $1.5 billion from BlackRock funds over concerns that the firm's support of stakeholders, capitalism and efforts surrounding ESG run counter to local politics and fiduciary duties. BlackRock has emphasized that it's committed to offering clients choice and delivering the best financial outcomes consistent with their preferences. Dom?
2: Leslie, there is a lot. You mentioned the political side of things, and and, and this is not that it's necessarily Mm -hmm. a political story, but there are politics at play here with that much money being taken out. We have an estimate, I -hmm. I think the last count was 36 gubernatorial races are up for grabs in the midterm elections coming up next week. 36 out of 50. What is the likelihood we could see more change in terms of how states invest their money given an election outcome where there could be a lot more red representation, hypothetically, when it comes to this kind of investing?
10: Yeah, no, you bring up a really, really important point here, because as much as we like to think that passive versus active investing is not political, it's just dollars and cents. 2022 has shown that it actually is political. And UBS actually recently downloaded BlackRock on concerns that there could be more of this kind of backlash where more states opt to take their money out and divest from BlackRock funds over perceived um, politicization of the issue. And so if it were true, if it it does amount to be the case that more Republicans do take control of gubernatorial um, elections and do win, then it wouldn't be too surprising to see some of them at least follow suit with many of their peers that have opted to divest from BlackRock funds this year.
2: High stakes for those midterms coming up. Leslie Picker, thank you very much for the report. We appreciate it. Uh, coming up on the show, Netflix is rolling out its long-anticipated ad-supported subscription tier. But is it too little too late for a stock that's already lost more than half its value this year? We'll try to debate that coming up next. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Netflix is rolling out its ad-supported tier in more than a dozen countries today. It's 6.99, $6.99 a month, and it's a basic with ads plan, coming a month before rival Disney Plus launches its own ad-supported plan. This Netflix, now the second largest streaming provider in the world, continues as its fight to secure the rights from major studios that are hesitant to run ads alongside their movie content. You've got shows like You, Grey's Anatomy, and Breaking Bad, possibly all at risk. Joining me now is Alex Kantrowitz, the founder of Big Technology. He's also a CNBC contributor to break this all down for us. Alex, let's talk about whether or not this is the savior, whether this is the silver bullet that solves Netflix's growth problems.
11: I don't think it is. I mean, you heard Jerome Powell yesterday. What we're going through is a fundamental revaluation of technology companies. And Netflix just has a higher burden than many others, because unlike, let's say, an Amazon, it's not really a platform. The company is commissioning the entertainment appearing on, on, the, um, on the service. And so you don't have user-generated content that can build on top of it. So, you know, Netflix for a long time was worth more than Disney. And analysts were saying that made sense. But Disney could build a streaming platform, and it did. And now, you know, you're starting to see this shake out where it's Netflix versus Disney, versus, and, and instead of uh, Netflix being in a different category. So, um, I don't think ads is the savior. I just think we're just going through this moment where we're revaluing tech companies, and, and it's a really tough moment for Netflix.
2: But, 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 Alex, th- this should lead to. I mean, you're, you're giving consumers more of an option, right? So, 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 let's say hypothetically, I I pay for the premium Netflix service right now, but I'm okay with ads, do I then downgrade my subscription? Or if I don't have Netflix right now, do I think about getting one because it's no longer, you know, 16, 17, $18 a month, it's only $7 a month?
11: Yeah, Dom, I'm with you. I think this could be good for Netflix. I particularly think it can reduce churn versus create a large ad business. If they can reduce churn, they can start adding subscribers, which has been a struggle for them the last three quarters. So they did have a good quarter, this most recent one. But I think when you ask the question about this being a savior for Netflix, I mean, you mentioned at the top, Netflix is down 54 percent on the year. And it's still fairly expensive. I mean, it's a $121 billion company where Disney is $185 billion. And Netflix doesn't have any theme parks last time I checked. So I think that this is going to be good for Netflix. Savior, something that's going to reverse that 54% decline on the year, well, that's a little bit more of a stretch.
2: If you look at the way Netflix is rolling out this ad-supported tier and you put them up against streaming rivals, you mentioned Disney+. Plus. I look at the results from Paramount. Just, just yesterday, I look at some of the other streaming platforms out there. I, I, I hear the Roku commentary. What exactly does this mean, then, if there's an economic downturn possibly at play for some of these streaming platforms and what their prospects are?
11: Economic downturn is going to be rough. Now, I think that there's some, some uh, positive uh, in there for all the streamings, because um, if you're not going out, maybe you're sitting home and you, those entertainment services are, are valued even more for you than they would be before. Um, But it's going to be tough for everyone. And, you you know, you mentioned economic downturn. You have more competition. And one of the streaming services that you didn't mention is Prime, which is $139 a year that averages out to something like 11 plus a month if you're doing it on an annual basis. And their content's good. It's helping drive Prime subscriptions. And they're just going to keep investing in content over there at Amazon, able to take on more uh, with less results than a pure streaming service would. So um, tough sledding for all of these services Um, I think Netflix in particular has a really rough hill to go go up right now.
2: Streaming's State of the Union. Alex Kantrowitz with that commentary. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Alex. Now, on deck for the show, this morning's RBI and the the under-the-radar names that have been quietly making investors a lot of money in a down market. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. There's a slew of economic data today. We've got weekly jobless claims, services PMI, ISM service figures and factory orders as well. At 8 a.m. Eastern time, the Bank of England's interest rate decision. Also a very busy day on the earnings front. You've got ConocoPhillips, Kellogg, Peloton, Starbucks and others all set to report their results. The G7 foreign ministers will convene for a meeting in Germany. And then President Biden heads to New Mexico to deliver remarks on student debt relief. A plethora of catalysts on the on the docket today. Now for something random but interesting, RBI. For that, we send it out to Brian Sullivan.
1: It is time for your morning RBI, something random but interesting that has caught our eye. And this morning, we promise we are not going to mention the Federal Reserve. Well, we just did. But you get the point this morning let's focus on stocks and try to find some new ideas for you because while you know apple amazon and all the usual suspects get the media attention for stocks there are actually a lot of under the radar names that have been quietly making investors a lot of money lately so let's start this morning by highlighting these market all stars and we're going to use one month returns to find some of these standouts find the best three stocks in the s p 500 the mid-cap 400 and the small-cap 600 over the last 30 days. Let's go. First, the big dogs. In the past 30 days, the biggest moves up in the S&P 500 are Norwegian Cruise Lines. It rose 49%. Dexcom, diabetes identification company, up 47%. And oil services firm Halliburton, up 47% in just 30 days. Not to be outdone, let's present some of the biggest moves in the mid-caps. Here we go. Champion X, they're actually involved in the natural gas and oil business. Avis Budget, tried to rent a car lately. You know how hard it is and how expensive it is? Their stock's been rocking. And Macerich, the mall owner, 45%. And what about the big dogs of the small cap world? Well, take a look at some of these one-month moves. You got Rayonier, Advanced Materials. It's basically doubled. Helix Energy Solutions, up 80%, and Oil States International, up 76%. See a trend there? A lot of oil, a lot of energy, a lot of natural gas in those one-month all-stars. But overall, it's the small caps for the win. Many have been winning for investors lately. It's kind of just a hopefully random but interesting reminder that as much as you have to focus on the big names, you also want to look for some of the smaller names, which are often left out of focus. Hopefully random but interesting.
2: Is random but interesting. Thank you very much, Brian Sullivan. Let's bring in Sam Stovall, Chief Investment Strategist at CFRA Research. He keeps his eyes on the markets very often, all day. He gets paid to do so. I, I, Sam, you, you heard Brian's report there on, on, on kind of what's been leading the way higher. I guess there's been so much focus on energy, materials, commodities, that sort of thing is this an area that has still got opportunity or has it just gotten too expensive given all the investor attention over the last call it year?
9: Well, when you say this area, I'm presuming we're continuing with Brian's forecast about small cap stocks looking relatively attractive. I think certainly from a momentum perspective, from uh, an the thought that, you know, they peaked in the latter part of 2021 uh, and experienced their own bear market uh, well ahead of large cap stocks. So I think, you know, they're trading at valuations that do look relatively attractive. Uh, I think, however, that because of the market's uh, response to yesterday's Fed uh, decision, if you will, not to sound as dovish as uh, the market had been anticipating, we're still going to be looking for those areas in the defensive and inflation hedge areas that are likely to do relatively well. So staples, healthcare, utilities from the defensive perspective, uh, but then also energy from the inflation side.
2: Could I could I just bring you back to the small cap conversation only because we kind of opened the door for it right there, Sam? the, The conventional wisdom had been in the past that when you have a forecast for what could be a market economic downturn, It is the large cap stocks that tend to do better because their balance sheets are stronger. They can hold up better in an economic downturn. Smaller capitalization names don't do as well because they're more exposed to economic cycles than large caps are. Why the outperformance right now and why do you think small caps could possibly outperform given this inflation and recession narrative over the next six to 12 months and beyond?
9: Well, I think, Dominic, uh, as we see today, the the market really is not continuing its nosedive that it incurred yesterday. And I think that what is happening is that uh, ourselves included, a lot of economists are projecting that the Fed probably will go to a 50 basis point hike in December from the 75 basis point expectation. Also, as we enter 2023, we'll probably have another 50 hike and followed by 25 with then the uh, Fed looking to pause and then pivot by lowering rates late in the second half of next year. So I think investors are beginning to look across the valley. They're looking at those areas that will likely benefit from the pause, then pivot by the Fed. And I think the mid and small cap area is what's garnering attention.
2: We're not seeing a follow through today, as you point out, from yesterday's big sell off. Does that mean in your mind, Sam, that the bottom is in? I think the
9: 3,500 level appears to be the bottom, uh, at least in the near term. Uh, Expectations are that, you know, you could look at from a technical perspective. That is the target from the head and shoulders pattern that developed earlier this year. Uh, Also looking at uh, P.E. ratio declines on average during bear markets, et cetera. So I think that line in the sand is the 3,500 level we're also in the best six months of the year from a seasonal perspective. Uh, And so as a result, we probably could see some encouragement, some seasonal optimism kick
2: in uh, between now and year end and early in the new year. The regular seasonal optimism is always at play during the fourth quarter of any calendar year. But this year is also somewhat different. It's a midterm election year. There are seasonal aspects and tendencies to that as well. How much do the elections coming up next week affect the way that you are looking at how the markets are valued right now?
9: Well, Dominic, historically, the uh, fourth quarter of the midterm election year is the second strongest in terms of average price change, up 6.4 percent since World War II and frequency of advance, 84 percent positive. And if you look to the first quarter of the year after, so first quarter of 2023, average uh, gain is 6.9 percent. And a frequency of advance at almost 90 percent of the time. So uh, even depending on whether you are looking at a change to the House or the House and the Senate, historically, 12 months after the October 31 date of the midterm election year, market has been higher 100 percent of the time. And the average total return was 21
2: percent. All right, Sam, before we let you go, just a few moments left here. 10-year yields are at 4.2 percent, two-year yields, risk-free money at 4.7. Are bonds attractive right now?
9: I think they are. Uh, We probably will see a little creeping higher with the 10-year, but then our uh, belief is that we will be ending 2023
2: lower than we ended 2022. All right. So perhaps a bid for risk-free assets there. Sam Stovall, CFRA. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Let's take a look at stock futures right now, pointing to some marginal losses at the opening bell following the sell-off yesterday. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern
0: only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,